Good morning. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joey. I'm one of the asso- I'm the associate pastor here, one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome you to Stonebridge. And yeah, it's just incredible to be here and, and see the growth and see us sending people out. That's just awesome. But as we dig in today and we're continuing in our series in Judges, I have a question to start our time today. And my question is, what are you afraid of? What is, yeah, there's here a few things. What is that one thing that just like debilitatingly just reaches down and just makes you just freeze up when you think about it? The other day I was, as I was preparing for this, I found an updated list of some of the most common phobias in the world. And so a phobia is something that causes such stress that it interrupts normal life function. That's what a phobia actually is. And so there's the usual things. I heard a couple of them probably, but arachnophobia, fear of spiders. I think my wife has a little bit of this, just, I mean, just jumping up and running from it. And I don't know how you can be so scared of something so small, but yet a lot of people are. We have necrophobia, fear of death. People don't want to die. That's a bad thing, I guess. One of the most interesting, one of them that was close to the top, glossophobia. This is the fear of public speaking. And interesting, people actually rank that higher than the fear of death. So Jerry Seinfeld once said, that means that for most people, if they had to go to a funeral, they'd rather be the guy in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. (laughs) Some of you are like, yep, that's me. I'll jump straight in that casket before I get on that stage. Another good one, colrophobia. Anyone know what that one is? I bet a few of you have it. Fear of clowns. Uh, I thought about, Matt and I talked about popping pictures up. But I knew just like the picture of a clown would just terrify some of you. Melissophobia, that is actually not the fear of women named Melissa. (laughs) The fear of bees or bee stings. Amen. (laughs) We had our own interesting little bee sting story here at the church a couple weeks ago. So I go walking out of the office over here and I set my cup down on the handrail. And right as I did that, all of a sudden I got stung by a bee. And I was like, well, that's strange. And I look up, and there's like four or five flying around me. So I do what any intelligent man does. I start swatting at them. Got stung by another one, so I ran back inside. I have a side door, so I run around. And look, and sure enough, there's a nest right outside the office door. And a half a dozen or more bees, wasps, are just wedged in there crawling around. So I call Matt, and I'm like, hey, pick up some spray on your way home. We'll kill them all. But then we had a couple of people here working. And so I let one of them, I let them all know. I said, hey, by the way, we've got a wasp nest. Just be careful. One of the guys is like, where is it? Where's it at? I was like, it's over here by the office. And he's like, okay, are you scared? He's like, well, I don't know if I'm scared, but I don't want to be anywhere near those things. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, like one time I was roofing and I tore off the, the roof. I was tearing off the old roof. And right as I tore it off, this nest of wasps popped out. And he's like, so I just laid down on the roof and slid off. (laughs) I was like, you were willing to slide off a roof to get away from the wasp? He's like, yeah. I was like, you were willing to break your leg 
instead of get stung by a wasp, he's like, oh yeah. It's like, I, I think we have a phobia here. Last up, we have windbagophobia. That's the fear of long sermons. Most of you fear that when you come in and see me up here. You're like, oh no, not again. Here comes the 45-minute sermons. Fear of all kinds is a part of life. And your success or your failure in large part is determined by how well you manage your fears. C.S. Lewis actually said that courage is one of the least talked about Christian virtues, but it is essential to all the others. We're going to look at Judges today. We're continuing through it. We're going to look at Judges 6 through 8. And while you're turning to Judges 6, again, I just want you to be thinking, what are you afraid of? Today we will be discussing a judge that had his own fears, fears of not being good enough, not being strong enough, Today we have Gideon. Gideon is actually one of my favorite Bible characters. See, Gideon struggles greatly with insecurity, the fear of not being good enough. And I've often had this struggle in my life too, struggled with insecurity. Through most of my life, I I often felt that I was not good enough, not smart enough, that there was somebody out here that could be doing God's work better than me. God, you don't want me. You want these people. They're, they're better at this than me. We'll be looking at many of Gideon's specific characteristics as we go through, but through each one, we can see his insecurity shining bright. So starting off right away in chapter 6, We're covering three chapters, so I'm not going to read all of them. I'll skim through some big portions of it. Um, So the first section here, these first ten verses, are really just this repeating cycle of judges that we've talked about over the past couple of weeks. And Rudy and Matt have beautifully pointed out this repeating cycle. And so if you haven't listened to one of those messages, go back, and they really dig into it. But we see it here again. Right here in verse 1, Israel does evil. We've talked about, though, how the cycle that they go through just keeps getting worse and worse. As they come back and repent, they never quite come back to where they started. Their acceptance of sin and idolatry just gets worse and worse throughout the book of Judges. Next, they they receive consequences for their sin. In verses 1 through 6, we can see that. But these particular consequences seem a little bit more extreme than the past few judges. Maybe that's because Israel's acceptance of sin is becoming more extreme, so God's punishing them a little bit more. But the Midianites are destroying everything. They're not just being oppressed or not just being controlled by a different country. They're being completely oppressed. Midianites are destroying all their crops, all the livestock, forcing the Israelites to live in caves in the mountains. Next, in verse 7, we can see that the, the Israelites cry out to the Lord. It's the same story we've seen the past three weeks. Same story, different oppressors. And as we move into verse 11, and I'll start reading there, we see that once again, as they cry out to God, he provides a deliverer. He provides a judge. So starting at verse 11, follow along as I read the call of Gideon. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, 
while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? As he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you, bring my present, and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. The first thing we can see is Gideon's insecurity in, in showing up in his, in his size and his strength. His first words to God, he says, I am the smallest in my house, and my tribe is the weakest in my country. He's so insecure that he has to ask for a sign. But yet, how does God see him? This small, insecure, weak little man, how does God see him? First words that God says to him in verse 12, O mighty man of valor. I had to look up, what does that mean? What does mighty man, what does valor mean? Well, it means great courage in the face of danger, especially in battle. Now, when God comes across him, when the angel of the Lord comes upon Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, a wine press is actually a really terrible place to be threshing wheat. So let me explain to you how somebody goes about threshing wheat in case you haven't done that in a while. Um, some of us probably haven't. What they do is they have their, their filter and they throw it up in the air because as they throw it up in the air, the wind blows all the weak, all the, the light chaff away, all the bad stuff, and the heavy stuff falls back down. And they sift and they throw and they just keep doing that until all the bad stuff is blown away. A wine press is actually, I had to look it up, like just wanted to bring a picture up for you guys to kind of show you what a wine press would actually look like. And so a wine press is actually kind of like a hole in the ground. And this one is most likely where we would have found Gideon. A hole within a hole. And so he probably would have been down in that middle part threshing the wheat. He would have had to thrown it up so high just for the wind to get it that by he's throwing it so high, a lot of the good stuff is falling out as well. Why would Gideon be down there? Why would he be in this hole in the ground throwing wheat up in the air? Because he's afraid. He's afraid that the Midianites are going to see him, that they're going to come, they're going to take away his wheat and possibly even kill him. He's so insecure that he has to hide just while threshing wheat. But yet, God's first words as he comes across Gideon in that hole in the ground, mighty man of valor, courageous man. God doesn't speak to Gideon based on what he is. He doesn't look at him and say, yep, that's a courageous man hiding in that hole over there. 
he speaks to him based on what God is going to make him into. Gideon is not called because he is courageous. He is courageous because of the result of his calling. How many times have any of us disbelieved God because we think we're too small or too young or too old or not smart enough or not popular enough? Maybe we feel like we've committed just too many sins for God to be able to use us. Somebody else, Lord, you want a smarter, popular, taller person to use, God, not me. God sees you based on what he's going to make you into. He sees to the heart within us and within Gideon, and he sees the potential that we all have. Now, the next sections, verses 19 through 35, I'll skim over those again, um, talk, just read a couple of verses. But in this one, we can really see Gideon's fear starting to come out. So we see Gideon then goes and gets an offering and brings it to the Lord. And the, the angel of the Lord just touches it with his staff and it springs up into a, a fire and burns up the offering. And Gideon is totally freaked out by this. Verses 22 and 23 says, Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Gideon asked for a sign that this truly was God, but the second he got it, he was terrified because he realized all of a sudden I'm standing before God. One commentary I, I read pointed out This is hard for us to understand sometimes. The idea of being afraid of God is strange to many of us here in Western Christianity. It says because we have no real sense of terror of the awesomeness of God. We think intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. There is nothing amazing about grace as long as there is nothing fearful about holiness. We think that coming to church and singing worship and reading our Bible, that this is our God-given right as Americans. That's, God gave me this right. When it is the most indescribable gift that we can be here, that we can open our Bible and read it. And we lose that mentality in Western Christianity. Next, we see that Gideon is told by God he needs to go into his town and tear down the altar to Baal that his father has set up next to his house. And God continue, says, continually says, I'll be with you, I'll be with you. But yet Gideon is so afraid that he sneaks in at night to do it. Verse 27 says that. He sneaks in at nighttime to tear down this altar. And then the next morning, the men of the town wake up and see that the altar is torn down. So they go out on a, on a hunt to look for the man that did this. Who would have done something like this? And they find out that it was Gideon. So they go to the house and they start banging on the door. Bring us Gideon. We're going to kill him for tearing down our altar. And Gideon's daddy has to go outside and cover for him. Because Gideon doesn't want to go out and face the town. Gideon's dad, it's incredible. In verses 30 through 31, he basically says, like, if Baal is such a great God, let him contend for himself. If Baal is so incredible, he will punish Gideon. Let him be. This is not your problem, town people. So they go away. 
Gideon's fear is directly related to his insecurities. He doesn't feel worthy to stand before God. He knows he is the most insignificant member of the town and of his family. Insecurity is not being sure of something, of being uncertain of ourselves, not being firm or fixed. It's being plagued by anxiety. Insecurity robs us of the joy, the peace, and the freedom that Jesus has for us. And instead, it leaves us depressed, stressed, and jealous. We all struggle with different insecurities, just like Gideon. I know we do. Every single one of us has some sort of insecurity. And that fear can prevent us from serving God, just like it did Gideon. How has fear kept you from serving God? Maybe you haven't served in D6 because you're afraid the kids are going to like stage a coup and tie you to a chair and eat all the animal crackers, right? Those kids are scary sometimes. We, we've got wrestlers and kids that do karate, and that's just the little, little ones. There are scary kids over there. I get it. It could happen. <laughs> Maybe you're afraid to tell your God story to people because you don't want to seem like a weirdo or a Jesus freak. You don't want to be that Jesus freak at at your work. So you just stay quiet and don't tell your story. We are told in Scripture over 350 times to not be afraid. God goes before us. I know that in the midst of crippling fear and anxiety, it's hard to remember those promises of God. That's why when when things are going good, when life is good, when we've got it all figured out and we're filled with joy and we're focused on God, that's when we need to be focusing on these promises. Memorizing these verses, you have 350 to choose from. Memorizing these verses, do not fear. Focusing on the promises, I will be with you. That way, when the fear starts to build up, we can run back to those thoughts and those feelings and these verses and these things that we've memorized and say, yeah, I'm scared and I'm insecure and I'm anxious, but God is with me. He says not to fear. God's words to Gideon back in verse 16 of chapter 6 are the same exact words that Jesus leaves with every single one of us when he ascended to heaven. I am with you. That is God's one-line answer to every feeling of fear and insecurity that we may have. What would life be like in every situation if we knew that God was with us? As you are heading into surgery in the next month or so, I am with you. As you are sharing your story with your coworkers, as you are sharing the gospel with your coworkers, I am with you. As we are dealing with struggles in our family, I am with you. As we're praying about moving to a new town or move to a new job, I am with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in each and every one of us. That should help us conquer some of these fears and anxieties that we have. Next, we can see that Gideon's insecurities lead to him questioning God. A lot, actually. Verses 36 through 40. I'll read that. Follow along with me. Chapter 6, verses 36 through 40 says, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. 
If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the ground let, it be, let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. The famous fleece story, famous fleece test. This concept of testing God and, and laying out some sort of test for God has been abused probably more than anything else in Scripture. People come up with these litmus tests to really tell if God is in something or not. Well, if he does this, then I'll know he wants me to do this. That's not really the point. Twice in these four verses, Gideon tests God. And then back in verse 17, from the first section I read, God, Gideon tests God to even make sure he is who he says he is. He's so insecure that he has to make triple sure that God is who he says he is, and that he really wants Gideon. At any point, God could have punished him for his disbelief. These are some of the biggest sins that we see Jesus speaking about in the New Testament, the sins of disbelief. And that's what Gideon is doing here. He has seen miracles. He knows this is the angel of the Lord, and still he is questioning him. Gideon even realizes what he is saying wrong. That's what I love verse 39. Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just one more time. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He knows he shouldn't be putting God to the test. But he has to because of his insecurities. The phrase putting out the fleece is familiar in some Christian circles, in some religious circles. It means asking God to guide us in a decision by fulfilling some condition that we lay out. If you do this, God, I will do this. Pastor J.D. Greer, and actually president of the Southern Baptist Association, says putting out the fleece is not a biblical method for determining the will of God. Rather, it's an approach used by people like Gideon who lack the faith to trust God to do what he said he would do. It's questioning God. It's showing our lack of faith. Twice Gideon reminds God of what he said. And twice Gideon asks God to reaffirm his promises with a miracle. The fact that God was even willing to stoop to Gideon's level just proves that he understands how we are made, fearfully and wonderfully made, just how weak each and every one of us is. God understands that. Who are we to tell God what conditions he must meet, especially when he has spoken to us through his word? Putting out the fleece is not only evident of our disbelief, but it's also evidence of our pride. God has to do what I tell him to do before I'll do what he tells me to do. I'm in control of this situation. Gideon's questions are not unlike most of ours. We want to know what God's will is for our life. 
Now, I do wholeheartedly believe that God does sometimes work through the minor details of life, just like Matt was talking about last week, but I also know for a fact that God doesn't always have a cardinal sitting on a mailbox to guide our choices in life. Sometimes, probably not often. I tell people that Gideon is one of my favorite Bible characters because I'm just like him. And Dre jokingly says that I need like neon flashing signs to tell me what to do. I just don't know if God wants me here at Stonebridge. Yep, sure do, right here. There's where I want you. Ah, I just, that wasn't bright enough, God. We constantly want to know what God's will is for our lives. His will is to follow Jesus, to be in the word, to be communicating with him through prayer. And as we move into chapter 7, we can see Gideon finally starting to step up as the leader that God has him intended to be. But yet, God continues to keep Gideon dependent on him. The first eight verses in chapter 7, we see Gideon rallying up a bunch of troops. They're going off to war. They're going to fight Midian. And he rallies up 32,000 men to go to battle with him. God says, no, that's, that's too many. I need you to whittle down this army. From 32,000, he whittles it down to 300 people. If Gideon wasn't already insecure enough, now he's got 300 men that's got his back. Keep in mind that the, the army of Midian has 135,000 that they're going against. 32,000 is too much. I'll give you 300, God says. Then through verse 18, we see Gideon. He's still like, now he's really questioning God. I just don't know. I just don't know. So God's like, okay, I want you to sneak into camp in the middle of the night, and you'll overhear a dream. And he overhears this dream that the Midianites had of Gideon conquering them and how scared they are of this man. Now he finally is starting to get a little bit of courage. Gideon the commander. Why would God continue to whittle down this army? When we are faced with fears, we must put our whole trust in God. If we are to correctly understand this passage, we must hear verse 2 of chapter 7. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. In other words... Because of the tendency of God's people to glorify their own efforts, to trust their own proven methods, to credit their own abilities, to think that their own cleverness is what got them out of trouble, God frequently insists that his people be reduced to utter helplessness so that they must recognize that their deliverance can only be through God's power and mercy. God almost always works through long shots and underdogs. As I thought about this and I was praying through it, I thought of, you know, the Israelites and the Egyptians. You've got these shepherds up against one of the largest conquering armies at that time. You have Joshua and Jericho. Rudy talked about that a little bit the other week. You know, you've got these men just walking around this huge town with these huge walls, and God's just dropping the walls around them. And most importantly, the underdog of a, a carpenter's son from Nazareth who conquered death and sin. 
No one believed that Jesus could be the Son of God. He was too poor. He was too mild-mannered. He was an illegitimate son of a carpenter from the lowliest town in Israel. Yet God used these seemingly weak features to save the world. When we think about the cycle of judges, can we see it in our own lives? We sin and, and we feel the consequences for our sin. And then hopefully we cry out to God. And he has sent a deliverer. No matter what we have done, if we cry out to God and ask for forgiveness and turn from the sins in our life, he will forgive us. God could have left us in our sin distant from him. He doesn't need us but he loves us so much and he pursues us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. Over and over again, God chooses to use what is weak in this world to glorify himself. That is so none of us can boast in ourselves. Gideon was insecure, but God can do incredible things through insecure men and women. Next we see the battle. This is, this is one of my favorite parts, the battle of Gideon. I can imagine some sort of conversation like this between Gideon and God. It's not, it's not in Scripture, but this is my imaginary conversation between Gideon and God. You know, Gideon's like, okay, God, what are we going to use to defeat this army? 135,000 men. What are, what are we going to use? Are you going to drop giant hailstones on them like you did for Joshua? God's like, no, I don't, if we use that one, I don't think we're going to do that again. Oh, oh are you going to use plagues to wipe them all out like you did the Egyptians? God's like, no, I don't, not today. That one's used. Ooh, maybe are you going to send venomous snakes into the camp and they'll bite them all while they sleep and they'll just wake up dead? Is that what you're going to, not wake up, but they'll just be dead in their sleep. Is that what you're going to do, God? No, I don't think so. Well, what, God, what are you going to use? I got it. Trumpets, jars, and torches. What? That's what you're going to use? Okay, God, let's see how this works. All right, follow along as I read verses 19 through 23, chapter 7. It says, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshittah, towards Zarahah, as far as the border of abel Malohah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they all pursued after Midian. This is such an awesome story. Did you catch that? Gideon circled up his troops around this Midianite camp, 135,000 warriors, in the middle of the night. And they start screaming and smashing jars and jumping up and down and waving their torches and blowing trumpets. And it freaked out the Midianites so much that they started killing their own men. Like, that's what it says. Verse 22, it says that. When they blew the trumpets, they set every man's sword against their comrade. The Midianites were killing themselves because they were so freaked out. 
this is, I, I know sometimes Matt and I can just seem like nerds probably, but if you aren't, if you are telling me that the Bible is not exciting to you, if you're not reading the Bible because it's not exciting, you are reading it incorrectly. This is one of the coolest stories I think I've ever read, and the book of Judges is just crammed full of these kind of stories, action and violence and intrigue and messed up people. And we don't have time for me to read the rest of the battle scene, but from here all the way to the end of chapter 7 and into verse 21 of chapter 8, we have this incredible chase scene of Midianite chasing after these two kings. And he's going through Israelite towns, and the Israelites are not stepping up and helping him. So he goes back later and starts whipping the leaders with bramble bushes. It's, it's awesome. Read it if you have time. Eventually, they catch up to these kings and kill them. In spite of Gideon's insecurities, we see that God uses him to deliver the nation of Israel from wicked oppressors, and it gives the country rest for 40 years. This is the last time the country will have rest. In the final verses for today, though, we can see Gideon's insecurities leading to foolishness and a difficulty in ending well. Chapter 8, starting at verse 22, we can see Gideon the foolish. It says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, good job. You got that one right. Like, here's the country. They're trying to set up a monarchy of Gideon and all of his sons down the line. And Midian's like, no, that's not God's way. He's supposed to rule over you. So he did something right there. But then all of a sudden, we have something fishy. Then Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from the spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. Drop down to verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. All right, strike one. You did okay when you said, no, I won't rule over you. But then you turn all these, this jewelry basically into an idol and put it in your town. And all of a sudden, the entire country is worshiping at the idol of the ephod of Gideon. Verse 29 says, Jeroboam, that's actually Gideon, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Okay, strike, strike two. I'm pretty sure there's something in here that says they're not supposed to have multiple wives. And I'm pretty sure it's probably pretty hard to raise 70 sons properly. I struggle with two, and he's got to try and disciple 70 kids. I, yeah. But it, he has multiple wives here, and that's not okay. And then verse 31, And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Okay, now we have strike three. A concubine, for those of you who don't know, is basically just a woman that is just there for sexual intercourse. Because multiple wives and enough to have 70 kids isn't enough for him. He needs a concubine as well. So what are we doing, Gideon? And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizarites. 
As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Baalbareth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. In the end, we see Gideon tragically ends his life like so many before him. He slips up, he makes a few dumb choices, and in the end, the nation of Israel and his family are back on the same trajectory that they were before. And Matt's really going to pick up right there next week and carry on and see where this lack of finishing the race, finishing well, really hit Gideon hard. What is his legacy to his children? It doesn't matter how many incredible things he did. The last thing he's remembered for is idol worship. In the end, his insecurity was his undoing. He wouldn't rule over Israel. He didn't want to give any direction to them after defeating the Midianites. His life is a picture of the cycle of judges. He's just falling right into that with the rest of them. Gideon fails to finish the race well. Now as we close up for today and we, and we think about all these insecurities that have plagued us and plagued Gideon, we need to be reminded. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more in my weaknesses so that Christ's power will reside in me. Yes, Gideon was insecure. And yes, he messed up at the end of his life, but God still used him in an incredible way. God's grace is sufficient. And Jesus is the better judge. He's the better deliverer than all of these. That's why we have this broken Savior's theme. All of these men are going to be broken losers at times. But God's grace is sufficient. God's grace was sufficient for Gideon. It's sufficient for you when you are afraid. It's sufficient for you when you are feeling weak and anxious and insecure about life. His grace is sufficient for you in your victories as well. Give him the credit he deserves. God's grace is sufficient. God uses what is weak of this world to glorify his name. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage. I, I thank you 